it's just so cool. I might have cried a little bit each time <laughs> watching their reactions, uh, and they're just so appreciative, and they're just like, why would you guys do this? Why? We're, we're generous people, and we believe in what you're doing, and our church and our people want to participate in what you're doing in this community, and it was so awesome, and that's just the kind of church that you are, and it was a privilege to be a part of it. Uh, full disclosure, I'm up here um, injured. Uh, I have this small cut across my nose. I know, you feel sorry for me. Um, but here's how it happened. Baby Jack was playing yesterday morning in his, in his tub, and, uh, and he pulls stuff out and just kind of tosses it. That's kind of his thing. And so he grabbed this little tambourine thing with the cymbals on it and, like, put some heat behind it. It was like... <laughs> Ha! And I was literally three feet behind him, and it just went zap like a frizz, like a disc, just yeah, in my nose, which was particularly awkward because I had to do a wedding last night, and uh, you don't get the jumbotron effect. It's not that bad, a little bruise and a little cut, but but for them on their wedding day, I thought pictures that they're gonna have forever. Ah, so I had Hillary put some makeup on it, and. Uh, <laughs> And so, uh, not out of vanity, further pictures, uh, you know, it's not every day that I have something in common with just the bridesmaids, but we, uh, <laughs> we, we, we did that deal. I did it, so the wedding I did last night was for a, a young couple in our community, and it was so awesome. Uh, this is a couple that before they came to our church for the first time, uh, they had, she had never been to church in her life, and he hadn't been to church in like 15 years. Uh, and I met them, Hillary and I met them in our condo complex and invited them over to watch a USC football game because he's a big fan and had a couple dinners with them, and then they came to church. And uh, it was just a reminder for me that we had the privilege to be a part of people's lives when they're going through transitions and seasons, and and they're they're different places in their openness to God. And you never know who's sitting next to you. This might be their first time. Uh, They might be going through all kinds of things, and this is the transition, this is the the moment when God has wanted to grip their hearts and bring them back, or or whatever the case may be. So so remember that. It's just so cool what God is doing in our community, because there's all kinds of great stories like like Dan and Lauren. Different kind of question. What do a mousetrap, a fishing lure, a roach motel, and a fly zapper all have in common. They're bait. Yeah, they kill critters. They trap critters. Yes, and to be precise, they allow the insect or critter to participate in their own demise, right? <laughs> they, like, they just, the, the, the little, just goes to the light, right? Or the little mouse is like, I want me some cheese. And so uh, whatever it is, there, there's, a, there's an attraction component to this thing, and before the little guy knows it, it's curtains, you know? And we are not insects. We are human beings with rational minds that can think through things. We have souls, and yet there is something in all of us that is also drawn to things that might potentially kill us. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later uh, this morning. I want you to know we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. If you are here and you follow along in your Bibles, that's where we're going. I'm going to provide you a little bit of context. If you are newer, if you're not a Bible person, if you look at this thing and you're just like, this thing has a lot of pages, uh, don't worry about that. We're going to put some verses on the screen. Uh, But before we get into chapter 4, here's the context. Luke, we're going through Luke. You can say it like Star Wars, Luke. You know, I don't know. But we're going through this book and we're looking at how this guy who was a physician is very detailed in his account. 
And he writes out at the end of chapter 3 in the entire genealogy of Jesus. He's very detailed. And right before that, he says this in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. He says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So you can see the Spirit of God in like a tangible, visible way, and he looks like a bird, and he comes out of heaven, and he descends upon Jesus. And then a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son, in whom I love, with you I am well pleased, whom I love With you, I'm well pleased. So the sky opens up, spirit in a visible sense comes down upon Jesus, and then there's this booming voice out of nowhere. That's God's voice. So it's interesting that Jesus was just like us in that he was going to be baptized too. That he wanted to be baptized, that that was part of his journey, that's what God wanted for him. And so just like all the other people that were coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized, Jesus did as well. Except for when he got baptized, the skies open up, the Spirit of God descends upon him, and the Father calls out in this booming voice, this is my son. Now remember those words, because if you were a good Jewish boy or girl in that time, and you, and you heard those words, this is my son, and this is coming from God, you, you would think about two separate things. You would think about how if you're a good uh, a Jewish person, you think to, you think to Adam, you think, there's two places in Scripture where, where that's happened before. Adam is one, and the Israelites are, are, are another. So, so Adam, in this genealogy that Luke, that Luke references here in chapter 3, he goes through all this. So he says, Jesus was the son of Joseph, was the son of, was the son of. And he goes all the way through, like, dozens of generations. And he gets down to the bottom. We're just going to look at these few words right here. The son of Seth, the son of Adam... The Son of God. So Adam was the first person referenced as the Son of God. Adam was who God made out of dust and breathed life into his nostrils and he came alive. He didn't have another like earthly father. He was created by God and God references him as the Son of God. Israel, the nation of Israel then, hundreds of years later, is referenced also as the firstborn children of God. That God creates all kinds of people, but, but for him, the Israelites were special and that these were his people. They were supposed to reflect his image, embody his characteristics, and show who he was to the rest of the world. Adam was supposed to do that originally. And then the Israelites were supposed to do that as a people. But what happened to both? Adam rebels against God. He reaches out. He takes the shiny fruit, and he's like, oh, this looks good. Maybe and so he separates himself from God, and he's had, God tells him he has to leave the garden, and when he leaves the garden, he goes into the unknown, which could also be considered wilderness. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, they rebel against God. They do their own thing, and they're enslaved and come out of Egypt. The famous story of Moses, let my people go. They come out of Egypt into the wilderness, and for 40 years they're there, and they grumble against God, and they doubt him, and they fall into temptation, and they rebel against God. So you have Adam, the original person that said, son of God, and then you have the Israelites in Exodus uh, 14 and 15 or 16, 17, something like that, where it says, these are the firstborn children of creation. 
These are like the Son of God. So a good Jewish boy or girl, he, he hears that, he, and he sees, okay, so Jesus now is being called the Son of God. This is, this is interesting. And then notice how this journey of Jesus begins. It says in Luke chapter one or chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, after having come out of the water, being baptized, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan River and was led, in, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted. Now, if you're a good Jewish boy or girl listening to this story, you would think son of God, Adam, nation of Israel, and then you would think wilderness. He's being led into the wilderness, and your mind would immediately go to the Jewish nation, led into this wilderness for 40 years. And you would think, this is not just a story about Jesus. This is a story also about that. This isn't a story just about him. This is a story about us. There's something that's happening here. There's dots that are being aligned. There's T's that are being crossed. There's, there's something bigger going on here. And so I want to make two observations or, or a couple of observations about just this one sentence. One, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Have you ever felt like God led you into a place that was uncomfortable? Did you know that he will lead you into difficult situations at times? He will lead you into trying situations. He will lead you into situations that don't make a lot of sense or into places where you feel like, are you even here, God? Sometimes, for the bigger story of what he's doing, he will lead you into difficult seasons of life. But what is clear is that it's not God who does the tempting, that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's not God who tempts, it's the devil who tempts. We're going to define temptation as enticement toward evil. And God will never entice you with evil as if to hang, hang some shiny thing out in front of you to get you to sin. That is not what he is in the business of doing. Look at James chapter 1 verse 13. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It's not God who tempts. He might bring you into a difficult circumstance, but it is the devil who does the tempting. Second observation is that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. This is a story about then, and this is a story about now. This is a story about him, and this is a story about us. It is a bigger Picture. And then lastly, the devil, if you just kind of circle in on that word, is just an interesting thing to talk about, right? People get uncomfortable when you start talking about the devil. And it can, it can be kind of like a weird or confusing thing. And, and, uh, the, but I, I wanted, we're not going to spend this message talking about the devil, but I want to just highlight the fact that the devil is real. As you look through scriptures, Jesus encounters the devil or demonic forces multiple times, and we can't ignore it. I'm, I'm interested in C.S. Lewis's quote here. He says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which we as humans can fall regarding devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we can make two mistakes when it comes to devils and evil spirits. Is, is we can pretend that they don't exist and err on that side of it, 
or we can obsess about them and look for them behind every rock and every, you know, I can't find a parking spot. The devil doesn't want me to find a parking spot. This is, this is the devil at work. I have, I'm up to set to my stomach. I, I, you know, the devil isn't afflicting me. Or you ate four-day-old sushi. I mean, it could be either, you know. So we can go in two different directions and deny that there is an enemy, to deny that there is a real evil force in this world, which would be a mistake. And an equal mistake would be to overemphasize and to think too much and to obsess and to think that the devil's around everything and up to everything and, 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 and blame everything on him. Because, as we'll see, Jesus has the ultimate authority over the devil, that he is not in control. And because of Jesus, we do not have to be slaves to this devil. And so we are aware that he exists and he is real, and yet we do not obsess about him. So Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, tempted by the devil. And it says in verse 2 that he ate nothing during those 40 days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. That's a classic understatement. Verse 3, the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, because I remember how you just got baptized and like the sky thing opened up and like the, the dove, and then, unless there was like a hidden PA system, apparently God spoke over you and said that you are his son. So, so it, let's, let's play that out. If you are the son of God, Jesus, tell this stone to become bread because I know you're hungry. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. So notice this, Jesus was hungry. How many of you have ever struggled with feeling like, is Jesus a God that I can relate to? Is, is Jesus just this kind of deity that came and was on the earth for a little while and then went back into heaven? Jesus was hungry. Jesus was human, just like you. Jesus sweat, just like you. Jesus was uncomfortable, just like you. When Jesus was out there for 40 days not eating, he got skinnier. His stomach shrunk. It was difficult. And given the thought of tur- turning this rock into a you know, tri-tip or something like that, it probably seemed like a good idea in some ways. Because he was hungry and had desires and had feelings and had all these things just like you. I think some people think, maybe if you're just kind of like checking out the God thing, that following Jesus or this Christian faith or whatever you, you have in your mind is all like unicorns and lollipops. And like once Jesus is supposed to just make everything good and all the bad go away, that wasn't the case with him. He lived a real life full of real struggle and difficulty where he was uncomfortable, where he had feelings that weren't, that weren't positive, were were. I mean, he lived in the real, in the authentic, in the ugly, in the vulnerable, in the dirty. And so because he was hungry and the devil sees that, he he makes this really easy thing. He says, if you are the son of God, why keep waiting for food? Just do it. Just, Just eat. The second observation I want you to make here is that the devil will consistently go at identity. 
He, he goes after Jesus' identity and says, if you are the son of God, so, so, so if you are the son of God, like if that's really true, then this. Maybe you know something about that. Maybe you've had voices in your head or challenges from people and, and you've had questions and you've had this thing that kind of haunts you occasionally and it just says, who do you think you are? If they knew what you had done, do you think that they would invite you to this thing? Who do you think you are showing up to church on a Sunday? You're a church person? Who do you think you are volunteering? Who do you think you are giving money to this thing as if you really care? Who do you think you are calling yourself or thinking of yourself as a spiritual leader? I know what you've done. I know the thoughts. He doesn't know the thoughts, but you have these kinds of thoughts in your mind. Who do you think you are? The devil, the tempter, the accuser, always goes at identity and makes you question, is this really for you? You don't really fit. How can you really live this way? I mean, really. Given your track record, given your family, given your background, this is going to get in the way of who you really are. But Jesus knows who he is, and he doesn't have to prove it. So the devil comes back to him over the course of 40 days, time and time again. It wasn't just three times. There's three times listed here, but it was constantly trying to tempt him. And it was in three particular ways. And the next two, I'm just going to summarize for you. The devil came back and led him to a high place. And he said, see all of the nations and all the authority. I have it, and I will give it to you if you just bow down and worship me. To which Jesus replies, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil comes back to him another time, and he, says, he takes him up to the top of Jerusalem, and he looks down, and he, and he says, hey, it's written, because I, I saw that you quoted scripture last time, so let me just tell you, I know some scripture too. And so uh, it's written in the Bible somewhere, um, I think it's Psalm 91 actually, that, that if, you, if you just jumped off of this high point, that God promises here in the Psalm that, that he won't let anything happen to you. So just jump off. Let's, let's test your faith. Will God really save you? How many of you have done that? Like, God, if... I, I jump off this roof. Will you catch me? You're going to hit the ground because that's just dumb. <laughs> and the devil tries that. There's this little piece of scripture that I'm going to take out of context and I'm going to tell you, you should just jump off of here and then your angels will swoop in and it'll be this really cool thing and we'll, and we'll have proven your faith. So the devil tempts Jesus in three ways. The first being, number one, to provide for himself. And he tempts you to provide for yourself. He says, you must be hungry. You don't have to wait to eat. Just make this into bread. You can do this. You can handle this. You don't have to, you don't have to let this play out. Just, just take matters into your own hands. To which Jesus answers, man shall not live on bread alone. It's not just about the bread. And in another instance in John 4, he says, my food, Jesus says, is to do the will of the one who sent me. So you see the physical, tangible bread, and yes, I am hungry, but there's a bigger story here, and I am fed in a spiritual sense by doing the will of God. He has me. Even if he doesn't bring food into my path today, or even if this, he has me. I am 
strengthened by doing his will. He is my source. Now remember, we talked about Adam and the Israelite people. How did Adam respond to a temptation like this? That looks good. Adam took the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. How did the Israelites respond to a similar temptation? When they're in the wilderness for years and years and years, they start complaining almost immediately. We're going to starve out here. This is crazy. At least back home we had In-N-Out Burger. We, like here, we don't know where we're going to eat. This is, how could you lead us out into the desert? We're going to die. We're starving. And so God gives them manna, right? The manna falls from heaven. Manna literally means what is it? Because it was curious. It was like, is that, looks like chicken, is it, you know? But it just falls, and he gives them clear instructions. He says, I'm going to give you manna every day, but I only want you to gather and eat enough for that day because I want you to trust that tomorrow I'm going to give it to you again. What did the Israelites do? They put it in their pockets for tomorrow, man. You know, they stockpiled. All the stuff that they stockpiled turned into, you know, maggots. We're all eating it and stuff, so that didn't work. But that is our tendency. We want to provide for ourselves, and God has always been interested in us trusting him. You can eat from any other tree in the garden, just not this one. Trust me. I'm going to provide for you food every single day. Just eat what's there for today. Trust me. The second way that the devil tempts Jesus and tempts us is to pick the shortcut. He says, I think that you're here to take all the authority, and so I'm just going to give it to you. Caveat, you just have to worship me. You don't have to go through all the pain of being on this earth and the sacrifice and all this craziness. Why would you do it? You can have it right now. You must want the keys to this place. You must want all authority. I'll give it to you if you just worship me. It's a shortcut. What did Adam do when he was given a shortcut? He fell. When he, was, when he was asked by the devil, did God really say? Let's just see. Let's just see what happens. Or the Israelites, when they got impatient in the desert from Moses, taking a long time to come down with the Ten Commandments, they built golden idols and worshipped them out of their impatience. And what do we do as humans? We take shortcuts. We think that we can get there quicker. We take matters into our own hands. And the devil keeps tempting us to provide for ourselves and to take the shortcut. And then the third thing he does is he tempts us to prove our faith. The devil quotes the Bible and he says, throw yourself down. They'll swoop up and get you. Let's, let's, test, let's test your faith in, faith in this. To which Jesus answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. He left him until an opportune time. He was going to come back. It's interesting that Jesus, or that the devil tempts Jesus in ways that are tailored to Jesus. Oh, you're the son of God, are you? Then just do this. Hey, hey, I know that this mission that you're on, I can speed that up for you. Or, or you could like to quote scripture. Here's a scripture for you. Did you know the devil knows the scripture better than you? He, he does. He knows it. 
Here's a scripture for you. Try, try, try this. He tailors his temptations to who Jesus is. But here's the thing. Where Adam failed and where the Israelites failed and where you and I constantly have failed, Jesus didn't fail. Jesus overcame the temptation. Jesus didn't fall into it. Jesus was the Son of God, God in skin, the only one who endured all the realities of the physical life, being hungry, being tired, going through pain and difficult circumstances, and did not sin and did not fail where we failed. That is the bigger picture, that he has paved a way for us to reconnect to God because of his perfect life, not because of our perfect life, not because of Adam or the Jewish nation, because we all blow it and mess up. He is the only one who has ever lived a perfect life and thus gives us the opportunity to connect through him to God the Father. That was his mission. That is what he was focused on. That is why he couldn't shortchange the process. That is the big picture. But on a more practical level, you and I are still tempted all the time. Even though that is true of us, we are still tempted on a daily, on a regular, on an ongoing basis. And so let's look just really quickly at temptation works and what we can leave with today. James, verse 1, says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. James was a fisherman. And so I imagine that when he's writing these words, he's thinking that when a person is tempted or enticed, they bite the hook, they are dragged away by their own evil desire, and after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, which reminds me of a story. How many of you have fished ever? How many of you have ever fished? Thank you. You've probably, most of you fished more than me, but I went fishing this one time and my dad like brought in a, a expert because he didn't know what he was doing. And so, and I had to borrow this fishing pole. It's not mine. Uh, but, but I did fish. And when I fished, uh, there was, there was this guy who was a fisherman who really knew what he was doing. And he took us out and he taught us the ways and he taught us like, that there's a particular way to cast. And there's other ways that you should not cast. And there's, and there's ways to do that right and there's ways to do that wrong. And he took us to the spot where he typically fishes. And he impressed me. What I remember was that this guy was a genius and that he understood fish. He took us to a place and he knew that at this time of the day, in this season of the year, that the fish would be here. And he knew that there were a couple of different lures that he might use and maybe a couple of different baits that he might put on the hook. And so it was my dad and a couple of my brothers, and we're out there and we're fishing and, and nothing's happening. And so I probably just would have kept casting this thing out, the same bait, the same lure for hours, just hoping for the best. But after a few minutes, he goes, no, that's not working. Let's change it up. And so he switches the lure. And he says, I think I know what to do. And with this new lure, he tosses this, we toss it out, and we immediately start to get some nibbles. He's like, ah, I knew it. 
And then my brother hooks a fish, and this thing grabs on, and my brother's like pulling for dear life, and he panics, and he, he actually just threw his rod and gave up on it. But uh, that's not the moral of the story. Um, but we, we caught fish that day. One of my brothers actually didn't catch any, any fish, and I remember the fisherman saying to him, no, that's okay. We'll be back tomorrow. And I thought, these poor fish don't have a chance. This dude's got their number. He knows right where they are. He knows the lure to use for them, and he's going to keep coming back. There is an enemy. He's real. And he knows how to tailor temptation to you. He will go after your identity and say things like, oh, are you really, do you, do you really know? And then he will use lures and hooks and bait. And he knows we'll get you right where you're at. There's some things that you'll never be tempted by, and there's some things that always seem to draw you in. You might look at someone else and say, that person you know, cheated on that thing on their taxes or cheated on their spouse or, or whatever. That I would never do something like that, and the enemy got you with pride. It might not be that, but he knows what it is. And even if you resist one day, he'll come back the next day. And he'll keep casting. And he'll keep that shiny thing in front of you because he knows that there's a desire, as James said, there's a desire that leads to an enticement. The shiny thing that we think, oh, maybe I am really hungry or, Does God really have my best interest in mind? How long do we have to wait? And there's this enticement that's there that leads us to a decision. And it's that moment of decision that we choose. And we choose either to go in the way of sin, which ultimately leads to death, like this fisherman with fish mounted on his wall, and the poor little suckers in there, they don't know what's coming to them. Or we choose to resist the enemy, and the temptation, and we choose to trust God, and we choose life. So what about you? How do you make that good decision time and time again? I'm sure there's lots of things that you could build into your life, knowing scripture and other things like that that Jesus used, but two very simple things for today. One is just to know who you are. Because the enemy will keep coming back and trying to make you question, if you really are this follower of Jesus now, or I I know what you did last summer. (laughs) I know how this typically goes for you. I know the lure to use for you. You're not fooling anybody. Know who you are. That because Jesus was tempted in every way, as Hebrews 4 says, because we have a high priest who was tempted in every way just like us and yet did not sin, that he paves a way for you to know the grace of God, that you are forgiven for all of time and have your relationship with God restored and you don't have to be perfect. Ephesians 1 says that God has chosen you as his own, that he has cleansed you and made you pure in his sight, that when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. 
that he has adopted you into his family, that he has redeemed you, paying the ultimate price, that he has forgiven you for everything that you have ever done and everything that you ever will do. He has included you. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. Those are all things that are true of you. And even if you do fail, when you confess, you are forgiven. And you don't have to fail. Because when Jesus did what he did on the cross, he took the authority from this devil. And he teaches us by his spirit and in his word. And he teaches us how to see and recognize the hooks. So we know the game that the devil plays. So we know who we are. And we look for the hooks. And we go in the opposite direction. Because a hook is a hook is a hook. It's going to entice, but it's there to ensnare. Know who you are because of Jesus. And then avoid the hooks. God, I thank you for the gift of forgiveness that Jesus made a way for us to know you in spite of our own weaknesses, in spite of our own sin. Thank you that you forgive us and that you have wiped the slate clean. And thank you, God, that we also get power from your spirit to recognize and to navigate the temptations that will be in front of us today and tomorrow. And that it's only grounded in our identity of who you made us to be and what you have done on our behalf, that we can continue to stand up to the temptations of this devil and to walk in a way that is right, that leads to trusting you and that leads to life because that is what we want. In Jesus' name.